Hey everybody, you are listening to the We Are Rising podcast. This is your host, Andrew Benjamin, and I'm joined today by Michael. He's the creator of the Kagatogi Road Multimedia, uh, chronicling all how MMA started from its beginnings, pro wrestling, shoot fighting, to about uh, to how it got to what it is today. Because for everybody that you know, everybody knows, well, MMA was not what it was, what it is today, what it was then. It just came about from an amalgamation of pro wrestling, shoot fighting, uh, mixed fighting, in the case of uh, the famous Anoki uh, Ali fight. But we got Michael here who is now has his own Patreon and is looking to just chronicle how all of this started and how we got here today. Michael, thank you so much for taking your time out today. I appreciate you talking yeah. to us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just, yeah, t- just tell us how you... What made you want to start with this whole project uh, and tackle? It's something that's really not talked about uh, anymore, or it's just it's not given enough attention. You know, just how actually MMA started, particularly. Uh, in, it looks like you're focusing on Japan, but also in America as well, kind of. Yeah, well, the, the way the way this all started was kind of interesting. Um, I would say a few years ago, I had been, you know, kind of. I hadn't really been paying much uh, much attention to MMA for a while. I was really into MMA in the '90s, and then I had, there was a there was a time there in the late '90s, early 2000s, where I was aspiring to be an MMA fighter, and that didn't really go anywhere uh, due to some personal issues in my life at the time. I was wanted joining the military. That's a long story, but anyway, I had been pretty disconnected from MMA for quite a while, and then a few years ago, I said, you know what, this will be just be fun to go and watch every single MMA event in chronological order. So. I, and my starting point at the time was, okay, I'm going to go back as early as I can in the Shudo. And, of course, a lot of the early Shudo is hard to come by. But I was able to start roughly around 1992 with some of the Shudo. And then from there, obviously, the UFC and Pank Race. And I would basically get every event that I could get my hands on and just go chronologically and be very disciplined not to, you know, jump ahead, but watch every event chronologically. And, of course, with the job and life, you know, that, that was a long, slow process. And I got up until about... I don't know, midway through 97, uh, late 97. And as I'm getting there, I'm like, you know what? It would just be fun to write about this, to, to chronicle, you know, to to cover this, because no one has really attempted anything like this, to my understanding. I mean, obviously, books have been written, and, you know, people will look at particular people or particular subjects, but no one, to my understanding, has really tried to do a deep dive and look at this, you know, from the beginning in a chronological fashion. And... Um, I just, that's how it started. I just got from there, and then um, I contacted a friend of mine. His name is Michael Orifus. Uh, he he uh, runs a Pure Race and MMA website. He does a lot of writing, and I just reached out to him and said, hey, look, I'm going to be doing this project. Now, I'd be honored if you, you know, wanted to chime in and, and write some stuff with me. I mean, that's up to you. I'll do it either way. But he was like, yeah, sure, you know, I, I'd like to you know, help you out with that. So uh, basically just started with me writing. You know, I now let me back up a little bit. I started in Japan for a couple of reasons. One, I really think that this has been an underlooked at connection with MMA. I mean, a lot of people covered the Brazilian side, the UFC, but a lot of people don't understand that a lot of what we see in MMA today really has its roots in Japan and the pro wrestling in Japan. A lot of the catch wrestling that we see really has roots in Japan. And people don't realize just how advanced MMA was, even as far back as the late 80s. Um, You know, without getting too far into the weeds, I mean, you had uh, Satoru Sayama, um, Tiger Mask, who even as early back as 1985 was having his students, um, you know, cross train, and he had, I think, um, 
one of the top kickboxing trainers from the Missouri uh, gym out in the Netherlands come by and train them in uh, kickboxing. Basically, they were receiving, you know, essentially a form of MMA training all the way back then. And, of course, Samo was a, a sambo nut. He was constantly looking at different uh, techniques in sambo and trying to increase his knowledge. And even though he didn't maybe have the best way of trying to articulate it, he <laughs> had the idea of MMA in his head even back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we see today. So to put uh, to put it in perspective, I mean, where would MMA MMA excuse me be without like Ken Shamrock? He didn't have Ken Shamrock and the Uf, early UFCs provide a, a contrast or a foil to Hoist Gracie. Where would that be? Or if you didn't have him later on against Tito Ortiz, I mean, the UFC may not be here today because he was a critical figure in bringing a lot of the fan attention to that. But a lot of people don't understand. He got his start in pro wrestling, and he really got his training from. You know, people like Tanaki and Minoru Suzuki, and from them, Carl Gotch, all on the Japanese side of the equation. And without Satoru Sayama, I mean, Satoru Sayama started the Valley Japan series, which brought in Hicks and Gracie. From there, Hicks and Gracie obviously started, uh, you know, Pride with Nobuhiko Takata. Um, and if you want to go even further down the rabbit trail, I mean, you wouldn't have K1 without Sayama. Sayama discovered Akira Maeda uh, way back when, before the got uh, brought him into pro wrestling. Uh, Maeda was a Sato Kekan practitioner, I believe, and, you know, he brought him into pro wrestling, and it was Maeda's friendship with uh, Kazuyoshi Ishii that really led to K1. I mean, he was doing Sato Kekan, and they had tournaments, but Maeda and the whole pro wrestling format really influenced Ishii and really inspired him to create K1, and, of course, without K1's influence in MMA, where would it be? So there's all of these different tentacles that go out, and so... Japan, to me, is really a nexus of a lot of that. Now, the Brazilian side of the equation is important, too, but from my perspective, what was going on in Brazil in the 30s and the 20s and 40s was really just someone that knew jiu-jitsu, wanted to show off, found someone that, you know, wasn't knowledgeable on that, and it was just like a style versus style fight. But the intention, the heart behind those challenge matches in Brazil wasn't to try to create a sport where you were going to be as well-rounded and well-versed in different fighting styles as possible. It was basically kind of a one-off, like, hey, I want to prove that my art's better than your art. So really, to me, modern MMA, really, as we understand it, started with Sayama. Mm-hmm. And, and we, so we understand him. Mm-hmm. We, talk, we talked to Ted Pelk, uh, who was the uh, help bring you, uh, the second iteration of UWFI internationally. He was also a commentator for them. Yeah, he also talked about uh, with Sayama doing the cross-training, all that stuff, and uh, uh, it, it, it's very interesting that it MMA is has kind of, I think it's out of all the modern sports that we can think of, I think it's definitely evolved, the fa- both the fastest and it, it, in terms of just everything that's happened, it has changed so much. I mean, look at boxing. Other than, you know, the rule change of the uh, the round changes after the uh, death of that one boxer whose name I can't remember, that, that's been in place for, you know, I don't know how many years. Baseball, for the most part, it hasn't changed. Neither has football. Um, a, lot, a lot of sports have barely changed. But MMA, you know, it started as one thing, then it changes something else, then it changes something else, then it changes something else. It's just amazing. Uh, uh, tell me, like, how... Uh, did it just? Does it just seem like MMA what was just such an easy, adaptable sport? That's why it seemed to just kind of catch on to so many places. Well, let, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. As far as the evolution, I mean, my perspective on this is, 
I think there is a bit of a misnomer, and I mean it has evolved in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong, but there's a misnomer that American, M- I mean that MMA in the '90s was super primitive, and on the American side of the equation, it was. But if you go back and look at like uh, Shudo from like yeah. 1992, '93, that Shudo that predates the UFC. I mean, you see fighters that are all of them have great cardio, all of them have good kickboxing skills, good takedown skills, good submissions. I mean, you watch it and you think you're watching modern MMA. Mm-hmm. The only difference really is that they're uh, all the fighters tend to be very hyper aggressive. There's no real stalling. If they go to their guard, they're looking for submissions. Um, if you know if they wind up on their back, they're trying to fight off their back. Uh, but they're very well rounded. And really, the only difference was because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu wasn't really influenced. In Japan at that time, there wasn't the positional awareness. There wasn't like, okay, I got to find my position, maintain my position, and then look for a submission. They were always on the go, always looking to attack. So that was a little different. But I mean, they were super well rounded. But the thing was, Shudo was so obscure, you know, as an American concept. And of course, a lot of the fighters were small, so they were going to have a lot of crossover appeal. Incident Away, I think, was the only one that really broke out from Shudo and kind of became more prominent on an international stage. But really, I mean, from the Japanese side of the equation, they were very well-rounded. I mean, and they were, you know, if you want to put it this way, they were 15, 20 years ahead of the curve uh, compared to American MMA. It wasn't until the early 2000s that you really started seeing more of the American fighters become uh, more well-rounded and more well-versed in some of the other aspects of it. And then, of course, later on, then you got into the approach of like, okay, we're going to have full training camps. We're going to, you know, um, so it did continue to evolve. But to me, when you watch modern MMA, you're really, in a lot of ways, seeing something that Sayama was doing even back there in, like, 92. Mm. Um, and that's that's really what has been one of the more revealing things to me mm-hmm. uh, just doing this project. Um, so, and also, you bring up a great point. We also stress it a lot. Uh, that The connection that pro wrestling has to MMA, and that seems to have been Almost, I don't want to say. I'll say. I'll say. It almost seems to have been erased because of what pro wrestling has become today. And it's almost. If you ever to try to talk about, yeah, at least in, I'm going to put it for a Western perspective that a lot there were all pro wrestling fans that just went over the MMA uh, and never turned, never returned to pro wrestling. American. I'm going to stress American pro wrestling, uh, or at least Western pro wrestling. Why do you think that 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 there is almost, at least with a Western, uh, wrestle, Western pro wrestling. Why it's why it's that connection is there's a big schism as opposed to in Japan where it's there's not really an embarrassment between the the, the connection between two, but Amer- but American fans just seem to not want to admit that there is a connection from pro, to pro wrestling MMA. Well, um, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I don't know how Japanese culture looks at it now, but it definitely seems in the 90s that, you know, Takaku Togi, which is just kind of a catch-all term for combat sports, mm-hmm. um, I think there was a lot of a lot of overlap, and I don't think they really looked at it like, oh, this is pro wrestling, this is this style, this is that style. I think to them it all kind of blended together in terms of being combat sports. So at that time, I don't think there was that much of a distinction between going to, like, a New Japan show and then maybe going to, like, a Rings event or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there probably was to some some extent, but I mean, it probably wasn't like as glaringly obvious as like going to a WWF show in the 90s and then going to a UFC event. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, I mean, honestly, I think MMA is really is just a different side of the coin of pro wrestling. To me, it's almost like pro wrestling for grown-ups. Yeah. I mean, the how it started with me was as a kid in the 80s, I got into pro wrestling. 
And then from there, I think the first UFC event I caught wind of was UFC 4. The first memory I had of it was watching Hoist Gracie get Dan Severn in a triangle choke, and I'm like, oh, wow, there's something to this. Mm-hmm. And then so I went to all the video stores I could and started renting all the VHS tapes of the UFC events, and that's how I got into it. And then, um, you know, I, I stayed I stayed into it until probably, you know, the early 2000s or whatever. But to me, it is pro wrestling. And then even now, I think it's marketing more as pro wrestling, even more days now. I mean, you look at the UFC, it's not like they're really trying or endeavoring to have, like, a legitimate uh, ranking contest. They're like, okay, we're going to give the legitimate number one contender for this title, you know, the shot. It's all about pro wrestling marketing. Like, okay, who's going to get, who's going to work best in this context and who do I have to negotiate with and what's going to work best to get the fans on board? I mean, really, it's marketed like pro wrestling, and it always really has been. And, um, I don't think that'll ever change. I mean, if anything... Again, going back to not to beat a dead horse, but going back to Siyama in the early 90s, he seemed to really try to have a, a systemized bracketing to, like, you know, to the competitors. And, okay, this is the middleweight champion, and this is the number one contender. And he really seemed to stick to more of a sporting aspect of it than, than his uh, successors. But, um, I don't know, just to put it simply, I think you know, MMA really is pro wrestling. It's just, it's just kind of a grown-up version. Or if you want to even take it back to pro wrestling in the 30s, I mean, it was real yeah. for, you know, its inception. And then at some point, someone realized, hey, if we work this, we can make more money. We can prolong this. You know, the whole working strategy started from people realizing there was money on the line because obviously when you have a, a non-scripted, non-predetermined uh, event, it's hard to control the, uh, the outcome. It's hard to control the narrative. So, for example, like a Ronda Rousey. I mean, obviously the gravy train comes to an end, she loses. If you, you avoid that sort of thing when you're controlling the outcome and you are, are in, you know, Controlling the ship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so, when deep diving, uh, the deep dives that you have done into Shuto, Rings, UWFI, uh, and all these, and all this other uh, MMA uh, shoot fighting um, stuff, what is it that you have discovered that either surprised you or that like you couldn't believe? Was there anything that you discovered just? It, doing all these deep dives that you found was like the most interesting tidbit or aspect? Wow, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I mean, I guess what I just mentioned, uh, how far ahead of the curve Shudo really was. Mm. And not a STEM, I mean, and the other the other organizations weren't as ahead of the curve as Shudo was, because I think Sayama put an emphasis on complete and total cross-training. I think, you know, the the PWFG guys, you know, uh, you know with Panaki and them and Rings, I mean... They did a lot of cross training, but it was strictly more from the pro wrestling that they, you know, that they had kind of come from and what Carl Goshkun instituted. So there was cross training, but again, it wasn't really coming from a we're trying to have a sport. It was more, I think they just had like certain conditioning routines and different things that they did. Um, but they were pretty ahead of the curve as far as like you know they were always in shape and they understood submission, they understood leg locks, which was something that obviously was foreign to the U.S. for a long time. Mm-hmm. It still, I guess, is in a lot of ways. Um, uh, or not, let me put it a better way. I, everything goes in cycles. I mean, UK, leg locks were all the rage, obviously, in the early 90s, especially in Japan. And now we're seeing it kind of there a resurgence of it in all the no-gi competitions, no-gi Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They seem to be all the rage. But this is not a new phenomenon. Like anything else in life, it goes in cycles. You know, there, no one's really coming up with anything new. They're, they're, 
whether they realize it or not, they tend to be recycling something that some of them will then discover, you know, earlier mm -hmm. on down the line. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 it probably goes without saying that when you're doing a, a lot of a historical uh, documentation of all this stuff, it's very hard to find people that were either involved. Well, I'm going to say, I wouldn't say hard, but I guess English-speaking sources, people that were, that were around at that time that uh, maybe are, 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 I don't know, it's, it, has it been hard to find uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, people or documentation to uh to extract from when you're documenting all this stuff that you're that you're taking uh taking part of uh yes um you know i i basically have had just to pull whatever documentation i can whether it's like piling through archives of black belt magazine or dave Meltzer wrestling observer or mm -hmm. you know just whatever i can get my hands on that i mean a good a good portion of my time in this project is usually when i sit down and say okay i'm going to cover this event okay what what media from this, roughly from this time frame, can I find? And I have to do a deep, a deep dive and to see what I can find. And some some months it's easier. There's more information to pull from than others. Uh, but you know, I do the best I can to find whatever sources I can. And it um, it's not not as bad as MMA as it is with kickboxing, actually, because I've been covering all the kickboxing events that coincide with this. And kickboxing, I'm telling you, is like the Library of Alexandria combat sports. It's like <laughs> it's. it's I mean, you have this rich history, all these great fighters that no one will ever know anything about. I mean, it's all lost. There's not hardly any documentation. I mean, for example, I just wrote about uh, Boss Rudin's last fight in Holland. Uh, I believe it was November of 91. I'm writing about this. And I have the event, and he was in the prelims. But there is no documentation of Boss Rudin's kickboxing record other than what you can just kind of figure out on your own. I mean, you can figure out, okay, he lost to Frank Longman. He lost to this guy who... There's no documentation. Even Boss Rudin himself said, oh, like, he was a French guy. That's all he could tell you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it's the kickboxing side of it is horrible. You just have to do your best. And a lot of what you do find is just fighters making up, you know, these exaggerated records and a lot of hyperbole. And, you know, um, and that's probably not something you're going to completely overcome in this. I just have to do my best to sort it out and, and synthesize it. Mm. Um and uh, as far as English speaking, yes, that is, and that's actually one of the goals of this project is to raise enough money to where I can hire translators and go to Japan or have them uh, by proxy go to Japan and find some of these people and talk to them. Um, so in the meantime, I've just been kind of trying to cover my bases on the American side of the equation. That's why I just got done with a two and a half hour interview with Billy Scott, you know, who was around in that time frame. So I'm going to do my best to find as many American sources as I can that's relevant. Uh, to this time frame and continue to go forward with that and as the money and time and infrastructure permit I would love to go to Japan and follow up with them. I'd say the biggest problem with this is uh, you're dealing with people that were in an era where there was a lot of kayfabe. There was a lot of mm -hmm. and a lot of these people don't want to give it up. They want to still insist that everything they did was real and they may be very informative about a lot of the behind the scenes things that were happening uh, at the time but when it comes down to actually talking about the nuances of how they set matches up or you know, you just get a lot of kayfabe and a lot of like, oh, everything I did was real. And that's unfortunate, and that's probably not something that, you know, I'm going to be able to overcome completely. So just have to take it with a grain of salt or just put, you know, just put it out there and let people decide for themselves what they want to believe or not. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So when we talked to uh, Ted Pelk uh, about the, uh, he was involved with the first Pride show, Pride 1, we asked about the infamous, um, uh, oh, my God, I just forgot that. Nathan Jones versus the uh, sumo guy who just died. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, Koji Katao. We because that's that 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 fight has always been speculated to be have been at work. You know, I asked him on the show outright, was that fight at work? And he said, just watch a fight, and I think you can make your own judgment. So you know, it, there's still people, people still, uh, and a lot of wrestlers as well. You know, uh, still keep kayfabe, uh, especially the Japanese ones as well uh, from from that era. You know, who uh, who insist uh, that everything was, I guess, real. I guess I, I guess it's. Yeah. I mean, maybe you've been doing that for so long that, you know, you don't want to lose face by finally coming out and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, this was a work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's something that I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, you know, it, it's annoying, but, yeah. you know, that's like anything else. There's always going to be some argument about whether it was real or not. But in most cases, I think you can tell there's not that many fights that you look at and can go, wow, I really can't make sense of this. It happens occasionally, but, I mean, most of the time you can tell what's real and what's not. Um, and as a general rule, I think, people tend to overblow or exaggerate a lot of works within MMA. And what I mean by that is, like, a lot of people, like, overstate the works in Pancrase. I mean, there were some in the early days, but, um, I mean, it was more legitimate than people realized. Or people misconstrue what a work is versus, like, hard sparring. Okay, so in the early days of Pancrase, you might have a couple of guys that are trying to stretch the match out. They're not choreographing it, but they're not necessarily trying to kill each other either. They're basically sparring more or less until... Mm -hmm you know, until they decide to really go for it. So that's not really a work in the, in the true sense of it. It's just, you know, there may have been gentlemen's agreements or like, hey, look, let me put it a better way. You look at the first prank, the, the first pancreas event, I think the actual fighting time was like 17 minutes. I mean, everything on that card, as far as I could tell, was legitimate. But, I mean, you can imagine what guys like Funaki or some of the, the people that are paying for this are thinking, like, wow, we're trying to sell this to the public, and they got 17 minutes in front of them. So, you know, that's probably freaking everybody out. So that probably led to some business decisions to being like, okay, we're going to try to stretch things out a little bit. Um, but that really only seemed to go on until, uh, I'd say, early 1996. And from 96 on, I don't really see any holes in any of that. And Pride, obviously, you have the you know, shenanigans in Pride. But outside of, uh, you know, Takata's matches, um, there wasn't too much, you know, throughout the run of Pride that really seemed too too fishy to me. Um that Koji Katao match was a good example. Was that real? I don't know. The match was so short. Basically, it was just you know, Katao falling on the guy and getting him in a Kimura and him you know, crying afterwards. Now, if you look at, a, look at his other shoot fights, he was pretty terrible. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. But that's, that fight just didn't go on long enough to really for me to get a, you know, to be able to say one way or another. But mm. I wouldn't surprise me if they worked it. Oh, I think it should be mentioned as well. The Pancreas guys, well, at least I know for the Japanese guys, it was kind of like... It, it was kind of like, they all trained with each other. Now, most of them were within that one dojo as well. So they were kind of training with each other. I know Fast Rudin has talked about that. Um, I think, um, was it Mark Coleman? Uh, was, uh, was Mark Coleman the one that was in Pancreas? Started out in Pancreas? No. Who am I think of? Rudin, uh, Shamrock, a lot of the Lionston guys. Oh, yes, the Lions. yeah, the Lionston guys. Yeah, a lot of them, you know, they, they were, you know, they were trained together. So I don't know if there was also just something with there as well that, you know, you don't want to kill your training partner, or your sparring partner, or whatever. So I think that's also a factor as well. It's not like now where, you know, people then who are, who are friends with one another in MMA won't even fight each other in, in MMA matches. They'll, they'll turn down matches. Uh, sure. They were fighting every month. I mean, you got to imagine they're fighting every month. So a lot of people don't understand, like, you were allowed to strike on the ground in Pat Grace. I mean, yeah. you were allowed to do it, but most people didn't. Most people had a gentleman's agreement, probably because they're having to fight every month. 
and they don't want to, you know, beat the crap out of each other because they're going to have to, you know, 23 yeah. days later. Same thing with the leg kicks. Same thing with the leg kicks as well. That's why you 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 rarely ever saw leg kicks, uh, at least at the beginning. It seemed to be that they were very hesitant to do leg kicks um, yeah. uh, in a lot of those fights. And also a lot of people don't have to remember, palm strikes were allowed. As far as I, I don't know when they, when they instituted... Uh, actual uh, knuckles uh, to be used, but I know that that was not, uh, closed fists were not uh, allowed at first. It was it had to be palm strikes. Yeah, palm strikes to the face. Closed fists were allowed to the body. You were allowed to yes, punch that was it. Yeah. But anything to the face had to be a palm strike. Um, otherwise, you were allowed to kick, or, you know, you were allowed to kick to the face, you were allowed to kick to the body or legs or whatever. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, they, you know, you're, you're right. They, they, they train together, they work together, they're fighting every month. And, you know, striking on the ground was kind of a foreign concept in Japan until, you know, I think it was, you know, Valley Kudo Japan 94 was the first time you really saw, like, a ground and pound or something. And that mm -hmm. that really, even Shudo at the time, you were allowed to kick on the ground in Shudo. Like, you could get somebody in a cross mount and knee them to the body or, you know, punch their stomach or leg or whatever. Um, but you, you weren't allowed to punch to the face of a grounded opponent in Shudo. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't until 94 on that they changed that. They started allowing punches to the face on the ground. So I think just the Japanese mindset or culture at the time, that ground and pound or striking on the ground just wasn't really, not that it didn't happen, but it, it just wasn't really, like, a common thing. I don't know if it was looked at as, like, you know, um, discourteous or, you know, uh, or lowbrow. I'm, I'm not really sure, but it just wasn't... It, I just don't think it was really the first thing they were thinking of. I mean, when they got on the ground, they were thinking submission. Mm -hmm. Even those early shooter guys, even when they could strike on the ground, most of the time they're just looking for submission. I want us to get a submission. I'm looking for a submission. I just don't think their thinking was like, okay, I'm going to get this guy to the ground and I'm going to just cave his head in. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't really in the, the mindset of the time. That's like one of those, uh, maybe those mixed rules. Um, I know that some fights had had rules where like once it gets down to the ground, no, yeah, um, I think, I, I think Pride had a few of those, ha, had a few matches like that. Um, maybe one of those, like, weird Gracie matches where no strikes were allowed on the ground or something. I feel like, um, that, yeah, I feel like that, that was definitely a concept for a while. So maybe Pride just, start, just said, just threw out the window and said, yeah, you could kick, soccer kick the guy in the face if you want to while he's down on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of it was just, I think, gentlemen's agreements. I mean, I think a lot of times it was just like, hey, look, we're going to go in here and we're just... We're just going to agree not to punch each other on the ground. Mm -hmm. And if you watch a lot of the early pack race, I mean that that held true. But you, what you would see was two fighters would not punch punch each other on the ground at all until maybe like the last minute or two of the fight. It's a close decision. Nobody, there's not a clear winner. So maybe two minutes left in the fight, they'll start striking each other a little bit on the ground because they just know they have to do something. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're working for a submission and they're just not getting that opening. So they maybe they'll throw a couple strikes just to try to kind of open up a submission opportunity. Um, so you saw it a little bit, but it was more of the American or more of the fighters outside of Japan that you would really see that didn't care that would just strike people on the ground. Because even in the early Pan Grace days, I mean, you could see, um, I think it was Larry Papadopoulos, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, but then like Frank Shamrock, some of those guys could care less. They would they would strike on the ground and it didn't bother them. Mm. And it wasn't against the rules, but again, it was probably just uh, coming at it from a different cultural mindset. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know you just mentioned that you talked to Billy Scott. Do you have any other interviews that uh, that you have lined up that you can talk about? Or is there anything about uh, any other interviews that they have had, have had, uh, that you've done that uh, opened your eyes to uh, something maybe that you didn't know about? 
for UWFI or Shudo or Pancras? Oh, sure. Well, I just uh, I just got done with this uh, Billy Scott interview, and that was really interesting and eye-opening in a lot of ways. Um, he really goes into some details about his shoot with uh, James Waring on the, De- the December 22nd, uh, 1991 event, the year-end event that they had that year. And also uh, Takata's uh, fight with uh, Trevor Brebeck. Um, oh, yes, which, I know that. Yeah, and there was a lot of information that I don't think has ever been reported anywhere. I mean, I just posted the first part of it on Patreon, and I, I admit it's free for anyone who wants to go check it out, that first part. Uh, but some really eye-opening stuff, and I'm, I'm in the process of transcribing the rest of it. It was a two-and-a-half-hour interview, so I still have a couple more parts to get finished uh, transcribing and putting up. But uh, in a nutshell, yeah, he talks about how really uh, Rebeck was screwed by his own people, his own attorneys, because he went there right from the get-go and said, because basically, you know, the Japanese wanted to negotiate some high-level American boxers that they could showcase their, you know, their, their style against. And I think they were looking for people that they knew they could win easily. I mean, I think they wanted an easy opponent for Takata. So they wanted, from the from the outset, a fight where, you know, Takata's going to be able to use leg kicks and do whatever he wants to do. And um, Rebic was like, hey, I'm not going to agree to a fight that has any kicks below the waist. It's going to have to be more of that American-style kickboxing at the time, which was, all, you know, the kicks are going to have to be above the waist. Um, and so... His attorneys were like, okay, no problem, no problem. We'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. But the thing was is that if he didn't fight, he didn't get paid, which meant his attorneys and his management didn't get paid either. So what they did is they basically told Warren one thing, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got it all straightened out. We got it all taken care of. And then behind his back, they would negotiate with the Japanese and say, okay, we'll do whatever you want. You know, this is what we want to get paid. And so that's one of the reasons why when you saw that Warren, I mean, excuse me, that uh, Rebus fight, he was so confused as to what was going on, and he was looking at the ref like, hey, are you going to stop this? What's going on here? Because basically his, his own people just threw him to the lions, so to mm, speak. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I never would have got that insight without him you know, telling me about it because he, I guess, uh, if, you go to the, if you go to the interview, you'll, you'll get it uh, firsthand. Mm-hmm. But I guess he was there and he got to see some of that. Um, so I uh, – what – for UWFI, and one thing is uh, we're doing it also a UWFI retrospective because we just, it, UWFI has such a fascinating, I think, long forgotten history. And you, like you said, you talked to Billy Scott and you talked about the Burbeck Takata, which um, I uh, forgot, yeah, that was in UWFI, but I forgot, uh, what year was that again? Was that the like? That was the end of 1991. That was, yeah, end of 1991. But, and... What what is your perspective of UWFI? Because I think that it is a very underrated promotion that does not get the recognition that it. I think it should get deserved both and for pro wrestling and for shoot fighting. Just yeah, where do you think that UWFI ranks among of the uh, among the Kagatogi promotions? Okay, well that's that's a good question, and uh, that is actually one thing if you go through and read through everything I'm doing is you get to really see the contrast and styles of these different promotions. They are all trying to do something in the same vein, but they really went out in different ways. So I started at the very first uh, PWFG event, which was in March of 1991. The reason being for that is they were the first ones to have an event. Uh, they had their, they had the first event in March of 91. Then I think, um, then I think it was the rings that had an event and then UWFI had several events, but really it's fascinating in that first year to see how they're all approaching it. Um, the PWFG definitely approached it from the most realism. They definitely put a priority on realism, but probably at the expense of entertainment value. 
I mean, they not everything was as entertaining as it could have been, but you really saw them try to put an emphasis on on being as realistic as possible. Now, the uh, Rings, on the other hand, the first year of Rings was pretty terrible, and it, I think it was just because Maeda didn't have any real infrastructure. I think he had the best concept. He really presented it the most, like, hey, this is a legitimate sport, and we have people from all over the world. At least he was selling it the best. But when Maeda started that in 91, he didn't really have any talent. I mean, he just had himself. And, um, and uh, you know, I think there was one other Japanese native, but he was just borrowing people from um, other countries, like Willie Peters and, and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and they didn't have any training on how to work a fight. So the results were really interesting. You know, you see these people in there, and some of the strikes are way too hard, and some of them are way too soft. And, you know, they're really working out the kinks. But he really didn't have the crew to work with, and it wasn't until – uh, late 91, early 92, where uh, Ishii from K1 started like loading in some of his guys, and then Bokan uh, entered the picture, and then it really kind of took on and became what it was. Uh, so basically, Rings was kind of that weird in-between point where they're trying to figure things out, but the UWFI, on the other hand, I would say was the opposite of the PWFG. It was the most entertaining by far. You look at that first year of 1991, most, I mean, every, every car is, tends to be super entertaining, but... It's definitely the least realistic. It's the most. It was the most that felt like a pro wrestling promotion. Mm-hmm. Well, a super entertaining pro wrestling promotion, and a, and a much stiffer pro wrestling. But also, too, that first year or that first two years, I think we're going to find probably a lot, um, a lot better than what it became. I mean, that in that early UWFI, you had uh, Kiyoshi Tamura. That's just he's amazing, and he he's doing all sorts of these innovative out of the box things that have never been seen before. Um, and you had Yamazaki was always excellent. But the UWFI's real big problem then, and I'm sure later on, was that they just would not stop booking Takata as, as you know, they basically kept booking Takata like he was Godzilla. Like, you undefeated, you just couldn't defeat this guy, and um, that really, I think, hurt them in the long run. And they really had a problem with foreign talent. Just a second. Southern, and JT Southern had no business being in a shoot style ring. You know, he just had no concept of the shoot style. He may have been okay in like an NWA kind of style, but he mm-hmm. he just looked terrible. And Burden got a little bit better, but he was really not a good fit for that promotion either. So Billy Scott was the first one that really uh, really took to that style really well. But um, as the years went by, I think they probably got even more into the pro wrestling vein. But even then, I mean. Let me put it this way: They were even having. They were the only promotion out of those three that was having tag team matches. Yeah. Like almost every card, they would have a tag team match, which did nothing for anyone because they didn't have any belts, so there weren't any stakes, you know, from a dramatic standpoint. Um, really, it was just a way to pad the card out. Like, okay, we have so many people on our roster, we need to use them, so we'll just throw Tamura and uh, Angelo together against these two. And I mean, they would be super entertaining, but they wouldn't really have much of a point. Um, so, to put it simply, out of those three, I think the UWFI was definitely the most entertaining of them, but the least emphasis on realism. The PWFG was probably the best of those three in the first in the first two years. Before Pancrase started, and they had Funaki and Suzuki and Shamrock. I mean, the quality, uh, as far as it pertains to an MMA, you know, um, basis was the best. But once they all left to, to Pancrase, the, the quality went down a lot. 
and it really kind of became a joke and a show of its uh, a show of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, one of the th- things that also I, I I don't know if you'll be covering it, but I hope you do because I think it'll be fascinating. Is uh, the uh, the era of Enochism? Um, do you plan to cover that by any chance? Uh, yes. Uh, if, if what you mean by that is, I know. I mean, that's to me one of the most fascinating things of this era too. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't really entered the picture yet, but Enoki, when he really took a fascin- a liking to MMA and a fascination with MMA, to me was super interesting. It may not have been the best product that came out from a pro wrestling standpoint. But, I mean, it was some of my favorite stuff that came out because, I mean, just how he would try to blur the line between, you know, shoot and work and, and, or try to use, basically, MMA guys as pro wrestlers. I don't think it worked that well in execution, but as far as the theory behind it, what he was trying to do, I'm really, I really like it. So, if you're referring to, like, the, uh, the Bubai uh, events and all that, yes, I will be covering that. Okay, great. Um, you said 2000... That, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, oh, even before that, he did a promotion called um, uh, UFO. Yeah. Uh, I forget what the acronym stands for, but he, they had like three or four events, and so you had guys like Gerard Gordeaux and Kevin Rozier and these early MMA stars trying to work for wrestling matches, and so the events, I mean, the actual results were kind of uneven and hilarious, but at least I respected what he was trying to do, so I'll definitely be covering all of that. Okay, yeah, because you said 02, 03, I think that's when maybe Enochism was at its peak. And just to give a little clarification, when I say Enochism, I'm talking about, yeah, like him booking shoot-like fights or possibly even shoot fights in, in New Japan, but also sending his guys to places like Pride, like Yuji Nagata, uh, to face Fedor, to face Krokop, Bob Sapp uh, facing, uh, I think it was Fujita that he lost to uh, in, in that match. Um... So I'm just curious. So, do you think that you 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 said that you think it's a fascinating? You do you like that era of uh, pro wrestling slash shoot fighting slash MMA? Do you think it, it's a? Because I know there's fans who love that era who think that that it's the it that there's there's so much. I guess entertainment out of it just because of how different it is and how different it was and just it almost felt like a like a wild west of just of like a random fights. But it, but for some it worked. Oh yeah, it, I, it's my favorite era of, of MMA, and I mean, and I have to admit that just from strictly on paper standpoint, you can say okay, these fights aren't the best. They're not. You know, these pro wrestling guys were not the best people to be entering into the situation, and there's some truth to that. But it absolutely, to me, is the most fascinating era because the lines were so blurred, and that's something that I hope this project really starts to shed some light on. Because even just like okay, even if you just take rings. You look at rings it was pretty much just a straightforward shoot style work wrestling promotion they had have an occasional odd shoot here and there but pretty much until not up until 1995 for the most part everything they were doing was work with some exceptions but then 1995 rolls around and then every single card they had from that point forward would have at least one shoot on it sometimes two or in the cases of the holland events there would be all shoots but they would continue to have shoots on every card um and then you know, by the time 97, 98 rolls around, they're having more and more shoots. And, of course, by 99 rolls around, uh, they have completely merged into a uh, legitimate MMA promotion. But to see the progression of that and the evolution of that is fascinating to me. And at the same token, what was going on in Pride and, of course, in New Japan and all the influx of different pro wrestlers, I mean... You know, it was, they didn't have the American mindset of like, oh, if you're, if you're a WWF guy or you're a pro wrestler, you're a pro wrestler. You know, it's, that's just what you do. But 
there was the lines were just so totally blurred. Even in the same promotion, you could be watching the same card, and it wasn't like okay, you go to a rings event in '96 and you're watching all works or you're watching all shoots. You would watch shoots and works and some things in between that you weren't really sure what was going on. And so it, it is it is messy and confusing in in some ways, but it's also to me amazingly fascinating in other ways. And I really hope that as we continue to do this, we're going to pick up on things that no one really saw before. And um. What the, do you think that a shoot style promotion? Well, okay, so we have Josh Barnett's Blood Sports, um, which has occasional shows, and we got WWE. I don't know if you heard what they're doing. They're doing something called Raw Underground, which is, I guess, shoots like or attempting to be shoot like. Do you think a shoot style promotion can work? And in, in today's era, we're just we all know that pro wrestling is quote fake, and that this that the line between MMA and pro wrestling just seems to have just been is just way too far apart. Do you think that style can ever make a comeback uh, as a regular, as a as, as a as a regular promotion? That's an excellent question, and that's something I've asked myself uh, quite often. And honestly, I don't know. I think I don't think you can really turn back the clock on it. To be honest, um, I think pro wrestling in general could be a lot stiffer. I think you could be go with a much stiffer style, and I think that would work well and be a lot more entertaining. And maybe a style that's not as completely dependent on high spots and launches and moonsaults and all that other stuff. Uh, but to have more of a martial arts style, I think, you know, can definitely work. Um, but in a, in a broader context, I don't know. I think, I think, I think MMA is going to be MMA and pro wrestling is going to be pro wrestling. I think, I think it's just too far apart. I think pro wrestling really killed themselves by, it, you know, being, being really cartoonish in the nineties may have, has yielded some short-term benefits in merchandise sales and different things, but really, they really shot themselves in the foot by not keeping it more serious um, and really losing kayfabe, really losing the ability to say, no, this is real. And and uh, But then, I don't know if you could have really kept that genie in the bottle with the internet. I mean, eventually with the internet, it's going to expose everything anyway, and you mm-hmm. can't really hide with Twitter and you know camera phones and all this stuff. So, it was probably inevitable that the, the, that the that the curtain that was separating pro wrestling and like keeping its secrets there, it was inevitable that that was going to go away at some point. But, um, uh, but you know, I don't know. I think it would be interesting if someone were to try, but I honestly, you know, I mean, maybe to an uneducated fan seeing it for the first time, they might be go, Oh wow, this is amazing. But any educated MMA fan is going to be able to tell that what's a work. So they're not going to really buy into the realism of it. So you may as well just have either, really over-the-top pro wrestling that has a lot of stuff that you're never going to see, like people diving off the top rope into the crowd and stuff like that. Or you may as well see a real fight. I don't really see that being able to work anymore. How about also the, in terms of training? Because um, as far as I have been told that in like the New Japan Dojo, All Japan Dojo, Noah Dojo, all the, all the schools in, uh, uh, wrestling schools in Japan, that they do still teach legit grappling, legit kickboxing, as far as I know, in American wrestling schools, they do not do that. I don't know about in the UK, but do you think that's also a symptom of just why you can't do it? Because you're just going to have people who just don't even know how to even punch somebody to make it even look like it's a real punch or a real kick or a submission. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that is significant. I mean, and the thing in Japan is they always train like that. I mean, the New Japan Dojo was always like basically doing a lot of cross-training and having some mm-hmm. kickboxing. And 
they always had an emphasis, and that's something that Billy Scott interview really sheds light on, is even though, I mean, he wasn't going in and having, like, real fights per se all the time, he, they, he always had to train like he was. They all trained like they had to be professional fighters. And they all trained like they had to be able to shoot if they came down to it. Because he said there were times they came up to him and said, okay, you're going to go, and then on this one you're going to shoot. So they always trained like a professional fighter would train, and I think that's something that's going on for Japan for a long time. Um, even though, obviously, you know, it was worked, they, they trained like a, like a professional fighter would. And that were, those were the expectations. There probably still are. There's probably still a lot of history and culture there that, you know, even though they're way more divorced from MMA uh, more than ever, that those traditions don't necessarily die easily. So they're they're still doing that. But yeah, no one in an American pro wrestling school is learning how to punch correctly or kick correctly or do real takedowns or submissions. I mean, that's just not the emphasis of it. So yeah, unless someone went into and had some legitimate martial arts, that wouldn't work anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious to know, do you still pay attention to MMA Current MMA, whether it be uh, UFC, Bellator, Ryzen, by any chance, or you, or, or is it just? Well, I would like to. I mean, uh, before I started this project, my my intention was to watch everything in chronological order up until the modern era. So then I could just be following along with all the modern stuff like everyone else. Um, but you know, it, it was time consuming, and of course, mm-hmm. having other responsibilities in life. So basically, I was kind of just stuck in the '90s and slowly working my way through it. And now that I'm working on this project, it's uh, probably going to take me even longer to get to the modern era. So I, there's always so much time in a day, so I don't actively try to watch uh, too much modern MMA. But I do try to at least be up to date enough on what the major stuff going on. So, for example, I know that Stein just uh, defeated Daniel Cormier. I mean, I, you know, I try to keep I try to keep aware of like major title changes. I, I try to read a little bit about it and kind of like stay somewhat informed. But I, at, at this stage, I'm not really pursuing you know what's going on topically but if i ever get caught up then you know i would like to do that yeah is it hard to find videos of just a lot of these fights uh that you're trying to chronicle from shoot from early shooto and, and early pancreas and just all is it has that or and also if you even can find video i'm guessing probably a lot of them ha- are just uh, are, are maybe highlights or not even the full full versions and maybe just one or two rounds potentially yeah. Why I started this too was that I happened to have a lot of the full events of a lot of these early fights. I mean, I was collecting this stuff basically. Ah. So, um, so basically, it just kind of added up to me like, okay, I have most of these events already. I mean, in my collection, um, I'm doing this anyway, so I have the materials here. I may as well just take a stab at doing something like this. Um, to answer your question more specifically, any Shudo pre-1994 is hard to uh, get your hands on. I've got a little bit, but it's very spotty. Um, so I've got some events from 92, and you know, uh, but anything from like 89 to 94, it's it's real spotty, and I'm I'm always looking for other sources. I'm hoping that I can find someone that has that, and if I can do that, then I'll go ahead and uh, chronicle all that stuff that I haven't been able to do so mm. far. No. Uh, but as far as everything else, most everything else is actually accessible. I mean, all the pancreas, all the rings. I mean, um, just about everything from the early MMA is accessible except for some of the early American promotions. When you start getting into uh, some of the Midwest promotions in the mid to late 90s, some of that stuff's hard to find. Um, like, you know, Extreme Challenge, you can find some, you know, some of that. Some of those other promotions that were kind of around 
during that time period. I'm sure they exist in someone's uh, basement on a VHS tape somewhere, but as far as actually me being able to find some of that stuff, it uh, hasn't happened yet. So I'm sure it'll become more of a problem as time goes on, but all the major promotions, I mean, anything Shudo Post 94, all the fan craze, I mean, all the rings, I mean, everything is, I either have it or I, I can get it. So that's not a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, let's just talk about, let's talk about what you got coming up in the future uh, for Kagutogi Road. Uh, what is there that you can tell our audience that they can look forward to either reading, listening to, or watching? Well, I'm going to, uh, right now we are basically wrapping up 1991. Um, we have a couple more UWFI events, and I think there's one more event in rings for 1991. And then things are going to start getting really interesting because, like I was saying before, rings up until this point uh, has been really uh, lackluster. However, now uh, this this last year in uh, ring shows coming up, uh, Ishii is loaning out uh, Masasaki Sataki and uh, and uh, uh, Kakuda, Nobuyaki Kakuda. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. But anyway, and Volcan shows up, and so we're really going to start seeing rings uh, get turned around here. So that'll be interesting. Um, and uh, and I'm going to continue to try to get as many interviews on board as I can. I'm just going to finish transcribing this Billy Scott interview, and I'm going to reach out uh, to some other people here soon and try to get that set up. And that's really where I would encourage people, if they, if they, if they check this out and they like what I'm doing, that uh, to consider being a patron of it because uh, I would you know, hope to take that and really put the, reinvest that into being able to go find these people and talk to them. And uh, really it's for everyone's benefit because this is an area that really no one – has tried to explore in a systematic fashion. And so I think that we all can benefit from uh, from a project like this because it just really, it's been done in piecemeal, bits and pieces, mm-hmm. but not really in a, in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just talk about the Patre- uh, Patreon. Uh, uh, any tiers or uh, just how people can, uh, can uh, contribute to it? Well, uh, right now, and this may change in the future, I'm still playing around with it, but right now it's just uh, basically just one tier, $10 a month, and they get early access to the things that I that I post. Whatever I post, I put up uh, for early access first. And then as time goes on, especially if I start doing more interviews and more video interviews, what I'll probably wind up doing is maybe creating separate tiers where, uh, you know, I'll have, you know, X amount of the interview available as normal, and then maybe some bonus portions. Um, and then I'm willing to take feedback if there's, if there's certain special things people would like to see. The problem with something like this is that when you don't own the footage of something, it's hard to really think, use that as a carrot. So I can't say, mm. okay, if you join my Patreon, I'll give you access to the entire library of 1997 Shudo or something. It's like, well, I don't own that, so, you know. So I don't know how I'm going to play with that structure in the future, but right now it's pretty much just $10 a month. You can join it. You can... Um, get access to what I'm doing, and of course you know that that's going to go into further development, further research. Uh, so, also part of it too is like some of the stuff to finding. I mean, finding the MMA stuff isn't too hard, but some of this kickboxing stuff from this era, now kickboxing is a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. Finding some of that stuff is a pain in the butt, and you really have to scour eBay constantly and find VHS tapes and then convert to DVD. And, um, and also finding some of the media, some of the, you know, news media from that era, you know, that's something that you have to put some money and time and investment into. So, but I'm going to continue plugging away at it. And just real quick, one thing I don't think we talked about that's super interesting, I would encourage people to look at is um, one of the things that I learned from this was the very first uh, real MMA fight that we saw in this project was actually 
in the second or third PWFG show, there was a Thai kickboxer by the name of uh, Lawi Napataya that fought uh, Takaku Fuke. And this is fascinating because it's a shoot. It's a real fight. They got this uh, uh, Thai kickboxer, um, and they just put him up there against uh, Fuke. And they really, you could tell, did not think this through because, for one thing, they have a very small ring, and they have unlimited rope, rope escapes. So what was happening was Fuke would go in there, and he would just get completely lit up on the feet. I mean, this guy was just, you know, putting a clinic on him. And then he would get the takedown because, you know, Fuke had some really uh, excellent takedown skills. He'd get the takedown, but the, the tie boxer was smart. He would just grab the rope, get a rope escape. And then in between rounds, he was having his cornerman grease him down. Literally, they had a can of grease. And they're just greasing him down in between rounds. And uh, Fuke doesn't notice it at first, but I think, like, around the time the third, uh, the third round rolls around, He's noticing this, and he's getting super upset about it, and he's pointing out to the ref, and the ref is having to grab a towel and, like, wipe off the grease, and then as soon as he's done wiping off the grease, they try to put some more grease on him. Um, but anyway, you could just tell that somewhere in the back, Fujiwara probably thought, okay, my pro wrestler here will easily, you know, get, uh, get this guy down to the ground and submit him, not having really realized the problems of uh, that having a mixed fight like this would, would be. <laughs> and then they... Later on, they uh, they had they, they did another one with Minoru Suzuki, and Suzuki was able to just grab him and get him down to the center of the ring and submit him. But those were two things I didn't even know about. I didn't know that those, because most of the time you read history, it's like, oh, well, the first shoe was Ken Shriver versus uh, Nakaya Nielsen, and that was when they first realized, oh, there's something to this. Well, you, know, you see, that's not really true. And even before that, I mean, I just got done covering a fight between uh, Ken Shamrock and uh, Takahashi, and that was a shoot. It was a very short fight, maybe two minutes long, and Shamrock just brutalized this guy. I mean, huge soccer kick to the face. The ref had to stop, stop it. Um, and there's different stories from Shamrock on what happened there. But, um, you know, and, and even leading up to this, you can see, like, uh, even we've, we've had a couple fights from Funaki that, I, you know, obviously the ending was predetermined, but everything up until the ending, you can see him. He's pretty going pretty hard. He's going at a pretty hard sparring style. And you can tell that they're shooting for position that I would basically call them like three-quarter shoots. I mean, they shoot for the most part up until it's time to end the fight. So even at this stage, you're seeing an evolution in how this is progressing. Mm. So a lot, a lot of interesting stuff. One of the most interesting things, I, um, it was in our interview that uh, Mark Fleming, but in another interview, he said, he said this about UWFI, and I think it's probably uh, true in the, in the case of that fight and, pr and probably early... Uh, at least pancreas, I would say, is that on the uh, uh, stand on the stand up, it was a work. On the ground, it was a shoot. Interesting. Uh, it probably uh, got a case by case basis. I mean, I um, I don't know. I wasn't there. I mean, but from what, it, like I said, I think it was a shoot most of the most of the case. But I think mm. you have to have kind of a flexible idea of what a shoot is. Mm. Um, you know, if you go and you spar someone in the gym. You're, I mean, you're having a shoot. You're not trying to work it, but at the same time, you're not really trying to kill the guy either. You're not maybe going at 100% intensity. So is that a work? I mean, I guess you could argue that it is, but in my in my estimation, it's just... Let me put it this way. I think with Pancras, I think it started out 100% legitimate for the first two or three events, and then I think uh, Funaki, who was a businessman, started to realize there were some problems. One, these events are happening way too quickly. Um, I can't just have Ken Shamrock destroy everybody and that's not good for business. Um, so that's when you started seeing some of the shenanigans take place. Uh, you know, where, where um, Jason DeLucia tells a funny story about how when he first fought Funaki, 
Funaki was just trying to play with him, basically like letting him, you know, get submissions on him. And so, you know, they're they're fighting or whatever, and uh, Funaki allows Jason to get him into a knee bar, but he misjudged the distance for where he was between the ropes. So he lets Jason get this knee bar, and he has to tap out to it because he wasn't close enough to get the rope in this game. Mm. So that wasn't a work in the sense of like, okay, Jason, I'm going to do this at this time, or we're going to do this. I mean, he was basically just trying to carry Jason along and toy with him, and then maybe later on put him away. But for entertainment value, he's like, okay, I'm going to let this guy get a couple uh, submissions on me. I'll get a couple rope breaks. Wound up backfiring on him. So is that a work? I mean, no, it's not completely on the up and up either. But but either way, I think a lot of that's overstated. I think most of Pancrase is legitimate. There was some of that pre-96. But as time went on, you can definitely see that uh, more and more um, – that stuff started to go away. And even when it was there, I don't think it was there as much as people have made it out to be. Mm. Um, my last big question is, I got to ask, out of all these fights that you've watched uh, for this project, what has been your favorite? Wow. That is, uh, that's a tough one. Um, anything with Tamura in it is amazing. Watching that guy, I mean, he, to me, was probably really one of a kind because he was able to do pro wrestling and legitimate shoot fighting at a very high level. I mean, Sakuraba was a, obviously an amazing fighter, but as a pro wrestler, to me, he was just okay. Wasn't bad, but wasn't, you know, amazing or top tier or anything. But Tamura, I mean, he did work shoots like nobody else. I mean, his work shoot at 1990, uh, uh, I believe it was 97 with uh, 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 was probably the best pro wrestling match of all time. I'd have to look up the date. I think it was June of 97. I, I could be wrong about that. Up that up. Um, but he was an amazing pro wrestler and an amazing shoot fighter. So anything with him has been amazing. Um, that fight that I mentioned with uh, Napataya and Fuke was a real eye-opener. Maybe not the best or most entertaining match, but, I mean, it was just hilarious just to, seeing the shoot that was basically nobody could have predicted the outcome and watching this guy get greased down in between rounds. That was a lot of fun. Um but just generally speaking, everything coming out of the UWFI and PWFG right now in this era has been great. Reigns is still uh, being a slow starter, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it progresses and how it evolves. Um, and, uh, and honestly, I mean, I don't want to stay in shoot style forever. I mean, I, I started in shoot style because I felt that if I didn't, I would be missing too many of the narratives and too many of the things that really led to where we are today. I mean, when I first started this, I... I for a brief moment, thought, okay, well, should I just start at the beginning of Pancrase? Should I start at the UFC? And I almost went that direction, but I'm like, you know what? There's just too much missing here that started in Japan. So there will come a point where, I mean, we're not going to be covering shoot style as much, but for pretty much all of the 90s and into the early 2000s, it, it is a huge prevalent force within MMA. So it's going to get that it's going to get that coverage. But I'm also trying to come and cover the kickboxing that was going on at the time and you know, cover whatever else is coming up at the time to make it relevant. Mm. So I'm not just trying to focus on shoot style pro wrestling, but that is where we're at right now. And so that's why it's getting as much attention as it's getting. Great. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, uh, obviously plug the Patreon. Uh, is there any social media that, that Kyle Tuki Road has? You could go ahead and plug that as well. Um, for okay, yeah, it's uh, uh, you know, patreon.com uh, slash Kakutogi, K-A-K-U-T-O-G-I. R-O-A-D. Um, here, let me just double-check that real quick. Yep, that's patreon.com uh, slash K-A-K-U-T-O-G-I-R-O-A-D. 
And, uh, yeah, everything's posted there as well as I do uh, after, you know, a week or two. I'll put, you know, a post, some of the posts, not all of them, but I'll put some of the posts on uh, the underground message boards as well and kind of share it that way. And I'll play with this as time goes on. I also hope to do more interviews. So when I do, when I start getting more interviews off the ground, I'll probably, um, I have a YouTube channel now, but I'll probably uh, dedicate a YouTube channel to the interviews uh, there as well. Um, and we'll kind of play with uh, the formatting of it. But basically I want to have as many forms of media as would be, be relevant and be interesting to people. Great, great. And once again, uh, that is Kagutogi Road, K-A-K-U-T-O-G-I Road, uh, patreon.com. Uh, please contribute to uh, Michael's endeavor. It's really awesome. We're glad that somebody is trying to get all this, uh, all this uh, documented into like one nice package instead of it being, seems like it's all over the place. Shoot the pancreas. Shoot, fine. It seems like you can find a little bit over there, find a little bit over here, but it's nice to finally see someone that's trying to centralize that all that, all, all, all that stuff into one area. Yes, thank you, and thank you for having me. Oh, one thing I forgot, um, one really awesome post that's on there, we dedicate a post to, uh, back in 1988, Satoru Sayama created a video called The Shooting, and I think the purpose of the video was just to try to create some interest in Shudo and get some people to join his gym. But this was before the very first Shudo event. The first Shudo event happened in 89. This was in 88. And it's hilarious because it starts off in like this uh, monastery somewhere in Japan. It looks like something out of a 70s era Shaw Brothers film. You know, like a martial arts film of the 70s. Yeah. And basically, you, you see uh, Sayama, like, it starts off with him making all of his students leapfrog up this giant stone staircase leading to this monastery. But um, And then from there, he's working on kickboxing drills with them. And then he takes them inside to this uh, place in the monastery that has these masks. They start working on submissions. And it's fascinating because here's 1988, and you're seeing this guy train them in such a systematic fashion with the kickboxing and the takedowns and the submissions and uh, the emphasis on cardio. And then from there, that's like the first half of the, uh, the video. And then the second half, he um, goes to the Korakuen Hall and has like a trade show kind of thing where he has like a mini tournament with his fighters and are wearing this headgear that looks like a came out of like an 80s post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of film and they, this bizarre headgear where they, but it's amazing because it's like a full-blown, I mean, it looks like you're watching like modern MMA on Fast Forward where there's no stalling, they're just constantly going at each other, kickboxing, the submissions, I mean, and this is in 1988 and so you really, it's really an eye-opener because you just see how far ahead of the time this guy was and he gets almost zero credit because he probably just didn't know how to brand it correctly and how to promote it in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but anyway, that's uh, that's super interesting. So, but thank you for having me. I appreciate it, um, and I hope that people enjoy this. And you know, uh, I'm learning a lot too. I've intentionally not tried to jump ahead and watch too much. I wanted to see this all with fresh eyes because I think it allows my commentary to be kind of fresh. And then that way, when I do see things and I do see nuances for the first time, I can kind of bring it up. And I'm really trying to keep myself disciplined to. Kind of every time I go into the next event, I'm doing it from a fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Great, great. And once again, yeah, uh, thank you for taking on this on this endeavor. Uh, we wish you the best of luck of it. And, you know, we're hoping that the, our listeners will, you know, they can definitely uh, contribute to your uh, and keep up with what, what you're doing with this whole thing. It's really great that what you're doing. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you having me. No problem. You have a great day now.